Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, CFTR Modifying Therapies. Our guest today is that issue's author, Dr. Stuart Elborn, Professor of Respiratory Medicine at the Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to explain the relevance of specific mutations in people with CF to new therapies currently available, identify which patients are suitable for CFTR-modifying therapies based on mutation class, and summarize the known risks and benefits of CFTR modification therapy. Dr. Elborn has disclosed that he has served as a consultant for Vertex in Boringer Ingelheim and has received research support from Vertex, Gilead, and Novartis. He has indicated that his discussion today will include the potential off-label or unapproved uses of inhaled colistin, lumicaftor, ivacaftor, and adalurin. Dr. Elborn, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much, and I'm pleased to be participating in this and look forward to describing some of the clinical impacts of corrector and potentiator therapies today. In your newsletter issue, Dr. Elborn, you reviewed key research into the effects of CFTR modifiers in patients with class 3 gating mutations like G5-1D, as well as the trials describing the use of Ivacaftor and Lumacaftor in combination to treat the class 2 F508-DEL mutation. Uh, what I'd like to do today is discuss how that information can affect clinical practice. Uh, so start us off, if you would please, by describing a patient situation. The first patient I'd like to describe to you is that of a 14-year-old teenager who has one G551D mutation and a Y563N mutation. This young lady is pancreatic insufficient but has reasonably good lung function with an FEV1 of 80% predicted. She has good height and weight centiles between the 75th and 90th but has a chronic cough though has had no admissions to hospital since 2007 for a pulmonary exacerbation. When Ivacaftor became available, she was commenced on therapy in May 2013. So as you've described her, doctor, she appears to have been in relatively good health at the time she began Ivacaftor therapy. Uh, talk to us, if you would, about her progress during her treatment. So she made a number of significant improvements in what might be considered to be important clinical outcome measures. So let's start first with her sweat chloride. Her sweat chloride before starting was just below 100 millimoles per litre. And after 12 months of Ivacaftor treatment had reduced to just above 40 millimoles per litre. And this is within the range seen in both the STRIVE and Envision studies. So in parallel with the improvement in sweat chloride, she also had an improvement in weight, moving from the 80th centile to the 100th centile. Her lung function also improved. Her FEV1 started around 80% predicted, but during the subsequent 12 months, it was maintained at 100% predicted. In our clinic, we've also been following the measurement of lung clearance index uh, using the multiple breath washout method using SF6 as the washout gas. This methodology, which is being used in a number of clinical trials and increasingly is being used in clinics, is a more sensitive measure of lung function in particularly children and young adults with cystic fibrosis who have a relatively well-preserved FEV1. And indeed, at zero months, 
this young lady's lung clearance index was 10 units, which is significantly greater than you would expect in a healthy person of this age, where you would be anticipating a value of around six units. Treatment with Ivacaster was associated with a reduction in lung clearance index from 10 to 8, bringing it towards normal, giving us a signal which I think is of additional value to the FEV1, which at just over 80% predicted is technically within the normal range. But the lung clearance index, I think, tells us that there is significant lung disease here and the treatment with Ivacaftor has resulted in an improvement in the physiology associated with lung clearance index, which is better ventilation homogeneity in the small airways. So the measurements we were able to undertake following treatment with Ivacaftor in this young lady indicate a very useful improvement in a number of physiological parameters that we would be routinely monitoring in patients receiving this therapy. What about her quality of life, doctor? Has that improved as well? These laboratory responses are very important, but what's even more important is is how the patient feels and what lifestyle changes result in the treatment which has brought a benefit to lung function. The patient herself reports that she now feels in excellent health her cough has gone away, and this was confirmed by her mum, who was really tuned into her cough, but now has said that she's had to go into the bedroom in the morning to make sure that she was awake, and that was because she was used to hearing the coughing. She is also now going out running regularly, can run now three to four kilometres very comfortably. So Ivacaftor treatment in this patient has resulted in a significant change in symptoms, but also some lifestyle changes that allow her now to exercise and to do some things that previously she would have not been inclined to do. And these things are very hard to measure in clinical trials, but I think have been our experience in patients who receive Ivacaftor who have a G551D mutation that this treatment really is highly impactful on their lives and transforms many patients in terms of their lifestyle and their ability to do things that they'd been previously unable to do. Doctor, MBW slash LCI, the multiple breath washout lung clearance index you mentioned. I know a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with that measurement. Uh, So if you would, could you briefly summarize it for us, please? Certainly. Multiple breath washout is a method used to assess small airway function by determining the ventilation inhomogeneity or the the variability of ventilation in diseased small airways. The principle of the test is that the patient inhales a very small concentration of an inert gas, such as SF6, and then they breathe out into another circuit and you measure the clearance of that gas from a steady state. This has been shown to be very closely related to the small airways disease, particularly in a disease such as cystic fibrosis. It's also been shown to be more sensitive than traditional spirometry measurements, such as FEV1. The measurement you get from this test is the lung clearance index and It is calculated as the number of lung turnovers or tidal volumes that are required to reduce the starting concentration of the inert gas uh, to 1 40th. That comes from a historical, traditional physiology set of experiments that were actually done during the, the 50s and 60s when this test was originally developed. The innovation is that you can now do this test much more straightforwardly with fairly simple equipment that 
could be used in any clinical context. Is this a measurement that's being used more frequently in clinical trials? A number of studies in cystic fibrosis in the last five years have used lung clearance index as an endpoint, and it's been shown to be very sensitive, and in particular in the study with Ivacaftor in patients with very mild lung disease, lung clearance index was shown to be an excellent endpoint demonstrating efficacy in a small crossover study. So this method, I think, will be used more frequently in clinics, but also will become a frequent measurement in clinical trials involving people with cystic fibrosis. Thank you for that explanation, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Stuart Elborn from the Queen's University in Belfast in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www. E-cysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest today is Dr. Stuart Oborn, professor at the School of Medicine at the Queen's University in Belfast, and our topic is CFTR-modifying therapies. We've been discussing how some of the new information Dr. Elborn presented in his newsletter issue can be applied in the clinic. Uh, so to continue, if you would, doctor, please bring us another patient scenario. Thank you. And the next patient I want to tell you about has been a very challenging case for us, and I think illustrates some of the future challenges we may have in patients who are receiving a potentiator or corrector and potentiator therapy in CF. This patient is a 32-year-old female who has one R117H mutation and an E60X on the other chromosome. She has moderate to severe lung disease and is pancreatic insufficient. She has been infected with stenotrophomonas multifilia somewhat intermittently, but has consistently cultured a fungus called Scidiosporum. And about five years ago, isolated a mycobacterium avium intracellulare, which cleared without any further therapy. 
Her therapy long-term, certainly over the last few years, was inhaled colostin, Donia's alpha and pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. This lady agreed to participate in the conduct trial. You discussed the conduct trial in your newsletter issue. Uh, just to refresh, this was a trial of Ivacaftor in patients with at least one R117H class 4 mutation. Yes, indeed, that the conduct study was a relatively small study which has just been published in individuals with this particular mutation. So the patient started on the clinical trial and then continued in the open-label extension. And her swap from the randomized controlled part of the trial to the open label resulted in an improvement of her FEV1 from 40% predicted at baseline to 64% predicted, suggesting that she probably had been on placebo in the randomized controlled trial part of this study. But then when she moved from placebo to open label ivacaftor therapy, had a significant improvement in FEV1. In parallel, her weight increased and the frequency of pulmonary exacerbations dropped and her symptoms generally improved. This young lady already had one child but was feeling so well on Ivacaftor treatment, she asked us if she could proceed to having a second child. After a considerable amount of discussion with the patient and our CF team and discussions with the manufacturer of Ivacaftor, we agreed that she could proceed to have a second child, but that to do that, the safest approach would be to withdraw from the clinical trial and stop Ivacaftor treatment. There still is extremely limited data on the effect of Ivacaftor on pregnancy, though the toxicology studies before licensing don't suggest that there's any teratogenic effect. At this time, she'd been on the open-label treatment for just over six months. When she stopped her Ivacaftor treatment, she lost four kilos over the subsequent two months and her lung function dropped within two weeks to 42% predicted close to her baseline prior to entering the study. And she had an increase in the frequency of pulmonary exacerbations. After her third exacerbation in four months, she felt so unwell compared to when she was on Ivacaftor treatment, she asked if she could recommence on the clinical trial. This was not feasible because she'd withdrawn from the clinical trial, but because of her previous excellent response, we had an agreement with the manufacturer that she could receive the drug on a patient access scheme. She was recommenced, therefore, on Ivacaftor and had an improvement in FEV1 from 40% predicted up to 61% predicted, uh, regained the weight loss with an increase in weight to 3 kilos. And in the following six months, she has had significantly less symptoms and no further pulmonary exacerbations. And indeed, this winter, she was able to enjoy a skiing holiday. Can we assume that when she went back on Ivacaftor therapy, that she was not pregnant and no longer intended to get pregnant? She'd made a clear decision not to proceed with trying to become pregnant, to have a second child, partly because she was so unwell. And we also advised her with the frequency of exacerbations and the weight loss, her chances of becoming pregnant were almost certainly reduced. So she made a very clear decision with, with her partner and with the CF team that she no longer wished to become pregnant and restarted on birth control and restarted then her Ivacaftor treatment. 
Now, this patient showed a very pronounced response to Ivacaftor when she received it in the open label part of the study, as well as when she resumed therapy. How did her responses align with the overall results of the conduct study? So I think that this patient is a good example of patients who responded in the conduct trial. Conduct was undertaken in patients with a wide range of lung function from moderate to severe lung disease to very mild lung disease and in a range of ages. The study overall did not meet its primary endpoints. The FEV1 in the whole population studied did not increase significantly. But in patients who were over 18 years and patients who had the 5T polymorphism on intron 8 were more likely to be responders. And indeed, this patient meets both of those criteria. She's over 18, she has more severe lung disease, and she also is a 5T variant. So I think this patient illustrates very well those patients who are most likely to respond to Ivacaftor who have an R117H mutation. What can you tell us about the issues this patient faced in deciding to stop the open-label trial and how she felt after she stopped her Ivacaftor therapy? This was quite a challenging and, and quite emotional series of conversations with this lady with cystic fibrosis. She was very committed and very keen to have a second child, driven, I think, by normal maternal desires to, to perhaps having a second sibling for a single child. And I think also was feeling so well when she was an open-label Ivacaftor, she felt, you know, I could do this, this having another child is something that is possible for me now because of the improved symptoms and improved lung function following the open label extension on Ivacaftor. However, she hadn't anticipated how much her symptoms would revert to the time before she was on Ivacaftor treatment and the impact that pulmonary exacerbations would have on her age with reduced lung function. So she really did change during the time that she stopped Ivacaftor for the purposes of trying to become pregnant, protect the child from any teratogenic effects of Ivacaftor, and realized during that time that, that she really wasn't well enough to proceed with a pregnancy. And she was really quite distressed that she'd made a decision to stop, even though at the time that was talked through in considerable detail. So she was very pleased to be able to return to active treatment through the patient access scheme and her physiology, but also her symptoms improved again very quickly. I think this illustrates that avocaftor therapy is a treatment that has to be taken regularly. You can't stop start it because stopping for a couple of weeks is likely to be associated with a deterioration in physiology and also in symptoms. The physician's responsibility to stress the importance of continued adherence to ivacaftor therapy, uh, that would seem to be one of the critical takeaways from this case. Uh, would you agree, doctor? Yes, I think so. This treatment needs to be taken regularly. We don't know exactly the length of time from stopping that, for example, FEV1 would drop, but it, it's certainly within the first two weeks of uh, stopping treatment. So I think it does illustrate that taking this treatment regularly is really important. Thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Elborn. Uh, if you would, please, bring us one more patient scenario. So this is an interesting and I think quite challenging patient scenario to discuss with you. This is a 29-year-old male with cystic fibrosis who had a history of fairly frequent pulmonary exacerbations. He was in discussion with us regarding assisted fertility when we informed him that he would be eligible to participate in the STRIVE study. 
DRIVE is the pivotal randomized controlled trial in patients with at least one G551D mutation comparing Ivacaftor treatment to placebo. This was the pivotal trial for licensing of Ivacaftor in patients with G551D and remains the, the key study in the development of potentiator therapy in patients with cystic fibrosis. Prior to starting the study, his FEV1 was 70% predicted. Uh, and during the randomized control trial part of STRIVE, his FEV1 increased to 90% predicted. He then continued on an open label extension and subsequently was prescribed Ivacaftor when it became available for patients in the UK. On treatment with Ivacaftor, he has maintained his FEV1 at 90% predicted. This young man also had a history of anxiety and depression, in part as a consequence of his concerns over his long-term future with cystic fibrosis. For example, he had made a conscious decision to not do some things in life because he wasn't sure that he would be well enough or would have a significant long-term future. He was also under review with our psychology team to give him support with some of the psychological symptoms associated with coming to terms with a condition where he might have a limited lifespan. He had around two pulmonary exacerbations per year prior to Ivacaftor therapy, but since starting therapy on the clinical trial and subsequently, he has not had any further exacerbations requiring intravenous antibiotics. So this young man had deferred assisted fertility in order to participate in the clinical trial and was now feeling so well, he revisited this issue with us and asked us, could he, while on Ivacaftor, proceed to have assisted fertility treatment with sperm aspiration from him and an IVF procedure with eggs from his partner? We agreed to do this, but again, in consultation with the drug manufacturers, we suggested that the best way to do this would be to have a one-month drug holiday and during or at the end of that one-month drug holiday to undertake the sperm aspiration procedure. So he duly stopped his Ivacaftor and his FEV1 dropped by 15% predicted within the first two weeks of stopping treatment. He had his ICSI procedure undertaken successfully during his one month off and on return to Ivacaftor treatment, his symptoms improved and his lung function returned to 90% predicted. And the good news for this young man is after two cycles of IVF, he is now quite recently become the father of a healthy young son. Between the STRIVE study, the open-label extension, and his prescription after UK approval, this patient has been in Ivacaftor for quite some time. Has he encountered any major side effects or complications from the treatment? No, he has been really very well on Ivacaftor. Uh, he's had no significant symptomatic side effects, and we've been monitoring things such as his liver function tests, uh, and there's been no specific problems with these particular tests or indeed any other tests that might indicate any toxicity from Ivacaftor treatment. He remains very well and is particularly pleased that he's now gone for four years uh, without a course of IVs indicating this reduction in pulmonary exacerbations and is also pleased that his lung function has been maintained at 90% predicted. Now, going beyond the specific patient, Dr. Alborn, uh, in the other clinical trials as well as in the real-world use of Ivacaftor, what side effects or complications have been reported? There really have been no major side effects reported with Ivacaftor treatment. Some patients do report some headache and symptoms suggestive of sinus congestion in the first week 
to months after starting Avocaftor treatment, but those symptoms settle down really pretty quickly. There have been some concerns just around liver function tests, but this is quite a tricky area in people with CF because CF is associated with some underlying liver disease in, in many patients, and probably 30 to 40% of patients will have abnormal transaminases, but this can be somewhat intermittent. So during the trials, we were very concerned when we saw any changes in liver function tests, but really our conclusion has been that the drug itself was not the cause of any LFT abnormalities, but it was much more likely to be the underlying liver disease associated with cystic fibrosis. However, I think we do have to be very vigilant with monitoring patients on treatment with Ivacaster because relatively few patients worldwide have had this treatment. And so it's important that we look out for very infrequent side effects that might potentially occur with new therapies such as Ivacaster. So pharmacovigilance and carefully monitoring patients on a new therapy such as this it remains a very important role for the CF team. Thank you for today's cases and discussion, Doctor. I'd like to shift gears now and ask you to look to the future for us. What CFTR-modifying therapeutic advances might be on the horizon? Yeah, I think this is an area of a lot of active research, both preclinical and clinical trial research. For example, combination therapy with Ivacaftor and Lumacaftor has now been trialed in patients who are homozygous F508 DEL. And that study has shown an improvement in FEV1 and a reduction in pulmonary exacerbations. The results were not quite so dramatic as those seen in the DRIVE and Envision studies, but do show a significant benefit of combination therapy in that large group of patients with CF who are homozygous F508 DEL. Also recently, the results of the UK gene therapy study have been presented at the European Cystic Fibrosis Society meeting, and they suggest a maintenance of lung function in the patients treated with gene therapy compared to a deterioration in lung function in the patients treated with placebo. Again, this is not a very dramatic improvement. Indeed, the patients didn't improve over baseline, but does suggest that the gene therapy is worth pursuing. And there are now a number of different gene-based approaches being trialed in CF patients, particularly in those who are homozygous for the F508-DEL mutation. So I think the future is very positive in terms of developing new and potentially even more effective therapies that are directed at specific mutations. And this approach has now been called precision medicine and developing precise therapies around CF mutations, I think, bodes well for future effective treatment of this condition. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, doctor. Let's wrap things up by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, the relevance of specific mutations in people with CF to new therapies currently available. Ivacaftor is an appropriate therapy for people with G551D mutation and also for some other so-called class 3 or gating mutations. It has also been approved for patients with the R117H mutation in the USA, but not in any other countries in the world as yet. So Ivacaftor is an effective treatment for specific mutations which have been shown to be responsive in clinical trials. Uh, and our second objective identifying which patients are suitable for CFTR-modifying therapies based on mutation class. It's very important that every person with cystic fibrosis knows which mutations they have, and that should be clearly communicated by the CF team to those individuals. 
This is important because therapies are likely to be directed at particular mutations and so important for both the patient and the CF team to be aware of which mutations a particular patient carries. And finally, the known risks and benefits of CFTR modification therapy. The data so far indicate that Ivacaftor treatment is safe with no serious side effects. The efficacy of treatment is really quite significant in people with a G551D or other gating mutation. This therapy significantly improves lung function, reduces pulmonary exacerbations, but also in many of these patients has been transformative in terms of their lifestyle, their aspirations, and their sense of hope for the future. The effect of Ivacaftor in R117H patients is less in terms of FEV1 response, but overall has been considered to be sufficient to approve its use, at least in one country. Dr. Stuart Elborn from the Queen's University in Northern Ireland, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you very much for allowing me to discuss these really innovative treatments, which are making a a very significant impact on the quality of life and the outcomes in people with cystic fibrosis. These therapies are a major landmark in the treatment of cystic fibrosis, but also I think speak to a wider optimism that by understanding the genetics and pathophysiology of disease, we can deliver effective treatments even in rare diseases such as cystic fibrosis. Well said, doctor. Thank you. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. 
Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.